that you get yourself a nice girl. I get, get a nice one almost every night, ma. Yeah, but get yourself a girl so you could settle down. That's what I, I mean. settle down almost every night, but then in the morning I'm free. I love you. <laughs> I want to be with you. Welcome to Aspects Radio. I'm Ben Flanagan. And I'm Corey Kraft. As the holidays creep closer, so does nostalgia. And with that in mind, we take our look at the Muppets and talk about some actor-director reunions we want to see happen in our lifetime. But first, we have a bit of an odd duck to discuss here, Ben, as we take a look at another family film currently in theaters. But this family film has a bit of an unusual pedigree. Director Martin Scorsese returns to theaters after last year's stunner of a psychological thriller, Shutter Island, with the PG-rated family fantasy, Yugo. A memory from his past. Who built him? I would think a magician. The most complicated one I've ever seen. Can we fix him? Of course we can fix him. <laughs> a mysterious connection. Hey, where did you get this? I need it to fix something. This is marvelous. A secret. What is that? I think it's a message from my father. Why would my key fit into your father's machine? To finding his way home. This is a treacherous place. Do you understand? Watch your step. We could get into trouble. That's how you know it's an adventure. You've tried to forget the past for so long. It's time to try and remember. The story's not over yet. This Thanksgiving, Academy Award-winning director Martin Scorsese invites you on an incredible journey. Stop that child! Apprehend! Once upon a time, I met a boy named Hugo Cabret. You searched to find a secret message. I need to know what this means. And how that message lit his way. Based on a popular children's book, The Invention of Hugo Cabret, Scorsese is working with a child actor as the lead, a ton of CG effects, and most notably, the film was shot in 3D. Though based on previous conversations on this show, I'm willing to bet I'm the only one who saw it in that format. Needless to say, this tale of an orphaned young man who lives in the walls of a Parisian train station and labors to rebuild a robotic man left behind after his father's death is, you might say, outside of Scorsese's wheelhouse a bit until you begin to unpack what the movie's really about. Ben, this is seemingly an unusual project from one of our favorite directors, so let's just come out with it. Is Hugo really a stretch for Scorsese artistically, and how do you do with it? It's an extreme stretch for him at first glance, but once this movie reveals its hand, it's a no-brainer. It really is. If you're familiar with Martin Scorsese and his role in terms of film preservation and his role as a virtual film encyclopedia, this movie is Scorsese. It really is, and it doesn't really share a lot of the elements that the films we know Scorsese for. It doesn't share any of those elements with those films. You're not going to watch this and see Goodfellas or Casino or Raging Bull. Not necessarily. There are little hints here and there, and folks like Thelma Schoonmaker are on board, and Robert Richardson is doing great work here, but this is just one of those departures that you're proud to see an aging legendary filmmaker take. And speaking of which, what is it about France and aging legendary filmmakers right now <laughs> because you get something like Midnight in Paris this year from Woody Allen and then you mosey along to November and now you have Hugo and it feels like these guys have found something new within themselves that has transcended much of what they've done in the last decade or so and it reinvigorates not only them but you the audience member I felt like I was just watching something completely new in general not necessarily a new Martin Scorsese film but something new for the medium it excited me. I walked into this not knowing anything about Hugo, and I think that's exactly how people should walk into it. And I think a lot of people will because this movie didn't get a gigantic marketing push. But I have to say, as it went along, I was trying to figure it out. As Hugo himself says, as he's explaining to his friend in the movie, every machine comes with as many parts as it needs. Right after my father died, 
I'd come up here or not. I'd imagine the whole world was one big machine. Machines never come with any extra parts, you know. They always come with the exact amount they need. So I figured if the entire world was one big machine, I couldn't be an extra part. I had to be here for some reason. And that means you have to be here for some reason too. And throughout the entire thing, you're trying to figure out, well, what part does Hugo play in this whole thing? And obviously by the end, when this big reveal is made, you understand what that is. And you have to think that Scorsese was tempted maybe not to call this movie Hugo because it's not just his story. Mm -hmm. But when you find out the part that he plays in it and what you get, what it culminates in is just absolutely magical and beautiful. And I just saw this movie. You just walked out of it. I'm minutes from seeing this and there's just... And we'll talk about this at greater length, but there's just the sequence in this movie towards the end in the latter part of the movie where I was just floored. I wasn't making a sound. My eyes were wide open. Again, I thought that this is just a a new breath of life that Martin Scorsese has somehow found within himself at this age. Well, it sounds like you loved it as much as I did. I did. Yeah. I think this is a great movie and I think this is possibly my favorite Scorsese movie in a long time long time and that's hard to believe because shutter island was so good shutter island was good i'm a bigger fan of the aviator than you are i think that's a masterpiece the departed is certainly good fun i wouldn't say it's it's great necessarily but that's the film for which he won his best picture oscar and now we have something like yugo which is so far removed from the rest of his work yet it feels so personal in so many ways given what we know about martin scorsese as as a, as a director and as a person who is involved in cinema and in the history of cinema so th- i mean i agree this is just a just a magical movie i take it you didn't see it in 3d though no i saw it in okay 2D. i did see this in 3d and while it's relieving to hear that you enjoyed it as much in 2d those who don't really have a huge problem with the 3d format in my opinion stand to benefit from seeing it in that format because in for my money this is the most immersive and effective the 3d format has ever been in any movie live action or animated Martin Scorsese is the guy, even beyond James Cameron, who finally figured out a way to crack that. Every particle of dust that sort of floats in the air in these rooms behind the walls of this train station, every billow of smoke, every snowflake, every little immaculate detail of this Parisian world is rendered so perfectly in three dimensions and just given this unparalleled depth and magic that only Scorsese apparently can provide through that format, culminating in this wonderful scene in which, not to give anything away, but there is a portion of a film post-converted into 3D later in the movie. Hugo does borrow quite a bit from classic cinema, uses clips of classic cinema, and, and does integrate some aspects of it into its plot, culminating in one final scene near the end in which one of these scenes of classic cinema is actually converted into 3D and the effect is stunning. That does add so much to it. It adds a great deal of depth to, as you said earlier, Robert Richardson's great cinematography. And just, it brings so much to this movie that is already terrific on its own as a story. I also saw it in 2D, more because the 3D effect just doesn't seem to work very well for my eyes. I remember when I was younger, I definitely saw it better. And for some reason, it just doesn't, it doesn't give me a headache or anything like it does some folks, but it just doesn't work. I just don't see it. And so I went and saw the 2D as well. But when you told me about that moment, I really wished I had seen it in 3D because it would have been sort of a special thing that I would have liked to see just because it's something so unique and different. Well, okay. What I want to ask about from both of you is how much do we talk about the plot of Hugo? Because obviously it takes a bit of a turn in the second act and there is a character revelation that doesn't mean a lot to say your average casual American film goer, but means a great deal to the three of us being people who were educated in film and do this program. So, I mean, Ben, you said that this is probably better off experienced completely blindly. It is. I mean, for me, I was lucky enough to experience it that way because I made a concerted effort not to read too much about Uh Hugo. 
And I'm glad that I did. If you make that choice, I don't think that enough is being written about it, honestly, or being said about it amongst your peers, perhaps, to where you're going to be spoiled. But look, I mean, it is special to people like you and me. Obviously, when I was a freshman in college, I think that this your first exposure, a lot of people's first exposure to, say, silent films or just the birth of a medium came during that year. And in those intro film courses, you might have seen it prior to then, but kudos to film professors out there who make it a point to show people how this thing got started in the first mm -hmm. place, because it is important. And what it reminded me of, and again, I don't want to get too specific here, because what happens is magical, and it gives you a newfound appreciation for how it got started and the individuals who moved it along and pioneered it. But say whenever you watch the Oscars, what's the most boring part of the evening? For a lot of people growing up, and even now, it's the Lifetime Achievement Award, right? Mm -hmm. But I think now, when we're greeted with these figures who may not be important to us at first glance, we need to take time to look them up and understand what it is they contributed and why they're being recognized. And obviously, there's an agenda there by the Academy in terms of who they pick. But, you know, I wish I would have been there to watch live when Charlie Chaplin was recognized by the Oscars or when Alfred Hitchcock received the Thalberg Award, things like that, because there's a moment in this that reminds me of those moments where we actually stop and think about who developed this and why we're all here in the first place. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's something that Martin Scorsese is celebrating here in, in, a, in a very large way. And you have this story on the surface of Hugo and his friend that he meets and the job that he does at this train station. And that's incredibly sweet. And there's nothing but pleasant things happening in this movie, but when we finally penetrate that surface, it just takes on a whole new meaning and creates a much richer experience for me. Well, I guess let's let's talk a little bit about the cast sort of dancing around plot points. You know, <laughs> Scorsese with this train station has built this this almost Jean-Pierre Junet in Amelie style group of characters who who all sort of inhabit this space. You've got Hugo played by Asa Butterfield, a young actor who I think was in The Boy in the Striped Pajamas, maybe. I think that's the only thing I've seen him in prior to that. He's sort of in the walls, fixing the clocks, making sure the machinery runs, uh, and, and sort of watching everybody in the train station. And this is an ensemble cast that includes Richard Griffiths, Emily Mortimer, You've got Christopher Lee still kicking at 89 in a small role. Jeez, he's 89? Yeah. He's a very interesting character. Yeah. And then you've got, as sort of Hugo's nemesis, Sasha Baron Cohen, who plays the station inspector, who's always on the lookout for thieves and orphans, has a particular chip on his shoulder, as we come to discover. But then Hugo's primary relationships, as far as the people in this station go, are with a young girl he meets, played by Chloe Grace Moretz of Kick-Ass, and Ben Kingsley, who plays a toy store, a toy booth owner named Georges, whose backstory becomes of importance later in the film. And he's the, uh, not adoptive father, but godfather, godfather of, of, of the girl. So we have this cast, and then later on, Helen McCrory is George's wife, and Michael Stuhlbarg from A Serious Man as, uh, as a professor who pop up later. This is an equally great ensemble to the one Scorsese assembled, I think, for Shutter Island, though he does reuse some of the same actors from that film. Obviously, Emily Mortimer and Ben Kingsley popped up in Shutter Island. But this is the first time in Scorsese's career that he sort of placed the responsibility of carrying a film on a young actor, or in this case, I suppose, two young actors in Butterfield Moretz. How do you guys think they did? Look, I'll be frank with you here, and it helped that there were no credits, but I didn't recognize Chloe Grace Moretz, and I didn't know that she was in this movie. Again, I knew very little about this. Uh -huh. And, you know, obviously she is a child actress, and she's growing up, and she's going through her adolescence now, and so there are some unrecognizable features, but... I thought that this was her best performance. I, I agree. I thought I she too. was just fantastic. And I thought she was honestly, if we're talking just strictly from an acting standpoint, she might be the star of the show here. I would, I, I would agree with that. Actually, I think that she was very good. She's and very good. Especially maybe in comparison. You, you didn't like the boy? I, I thought he was fine. I thought he was great. I, I thought he had the look of the character down. Just he looked great. But I mean, his acting was fine. I thought he good. carried the movie fine. Uh, yeah. The, you know, there were some emotional moments, I guess, that he might not been I totally that, up for. Uh -huh. uh, part, and, part of the problem is that the second half of the movie doesn't really relate to him anymore. Right. Well, he's done his job. Right. right. Yeah. And we don't find out what he has done or why he's there. And 
till after the fact, really. But he's got this great emotional moment with Sasha Baron Cohen near the end of the movie that I think he knocks out of the park. And I think Sasha Baron Cohen knocks that out of the park and turns this you know, when we saw the first trailers for this movie, there was this fear that he was going to be playing this goofball comic relief villain sort. But it ends up, I mean, it is it is that to a certain degree, but it ends up being a great deal more complex as we see in that scene. And I actually, if I had a problem with any character, it was his character. I, I just, I liked at the end, I liked what you were referring to at the end. I think that he redeemed himself with those scenes. But I thought the beginning, he was just so goofy and over the top that it just didn't quite fit into this magical sort of overarching train station that I really I, loved I every other character in. And I just felt like he didn't quite fit. I don't agree with that. I think he's, I think he's really funny from the beginning like apart from this sort of madcap chase scene at the very beginning of the movie which is where all of that material from the trailer comes from i found that pretty amusing Mm -hmm. he's sort of this tragic comic figure in a lot of ways and i thought he did very nicely but as far as an acting mvp in this movie i gotta go with ben kingsley who knocked his role out of the park and if i'm an academy voter he's gonna be high on my ballot for best supporting actor yeah, definitely. And the ensemble really is something else. I think everybody contributes in their own little ways. There are little moments, I guess, with the Richard Griffiths character that didn't necessarily work for me. There's some mm-hmm. sweet moments. Like there, there's a nice little scene with a couple of dogs that yeah. works fine and yeah, ties up, you know, puts a nice little boat on his little arc. But look, I thought Sasha Baron Cohen was fantastic. I thought he was hilarious. And he has these little moments that feel like ad libs. I don't know if they're part of the script, but he'll be talking on the phone yeah, yeah. with some or he'll be be speaking off screen with another character and they're just tiny little miracles of dialogue and again i don't know if that credit goes to him or if it goes to the writer is it john logan john logan yeah but no i thought he was funny i mean there's a part where he's on the phone with another with the, the orphanage i guess or whoever rounds them up or police or he's listing all of these little crimes that these kids are committing right. and one of the crimes he lists is playing he, he says <laughs> one thing they're doing is playing which is something you, you know children shouldn't do apparently but no, I thought he fit nicely. And again, he has an, a little subplot there with the just incredibly charming Emily Mortimer. Who, ben Kingsley, yeah, definitely with Moretz. She's great. And another actor that totally worked for me and I thought served the purpose of the narrative so beautifully. It's not a flashy performance at all, but it's Michael Stuhlbarg. He's great. He is. He's so good. And I mean, this guy was just fantastic and a serious man. But if you've seen him in any other films or TV shows, he's on Boardwalk Empire This guy's a chameleon. He's just an actor's actor. He's part of my favorite scene in the movie and probably the most heartbreaking line delivery from Ben Kingsley, which I can't, I just want to give it away so badly, but I think even out of context, the line that Ben Kingsley delivers when he happens upon this professor character played by Stuhlbarg and his wife played by Helen McCrory and the two kids in the living room of his apartment, he happens upon them doing something and he just delivers this line that just breaks your heart, which, God, I want to give it away. I just want to say <laughs> Yeah, well, is, look, it would be a disservice to yeah. tell people but, what yeah. part he plays in the movie. You're right, you know? you're right. And But they're both great. I mean, and that scene is just wonderful and, and what that scene leads to, sort of the Kingsley character's backstory. But one thing that I do want to get back to is sort of the idea of this movie as a machine. There are no extra parts in this machine, be it the small roles from Jude Law and Ray Winstone, who we haven't even mentioned. Oh, yet. he's great. Yeah. I mean, they're both really good in this movie, just in their brief little moments to, to even a cameo from Martin Scorsese himself, which pops up at a very opportune and obviously special point for the director, the photography, the set building the costuming, particularly in these flashback sequences. All of this is just of this grand design by Scorsese that is just an an absolutely enrapturing piece of work from a guy we knew was great. We always knew he was great, but this, I mean, for me, this takes his work to a new level. And if he's going to be working in this caliber for the rest of his career, then we're just so fortunate for that. All I'll say is that this movie has one of the best sequences of the year and of this early point in this new decade. And, you know, I would compare it to something like what you see in Up. People often refer to that as just being a short film within itself. Uh And all I'll say is that it's during a flashback and during a story that's being told by Ben Kingsley. And that sequence to me is just what movies are all about. It's about flooring an audience member that way and the magic of storytelling. And I think that Martin Scorsese, and we know him for so many different things, but just not for this. And the fact that he found this new part 
of himself as a storyteller, of somebody who can just drive this narrative home. It's just so reassuring to an audience member and a fan of someone like him where you expect certain things from him, but when you get what you don't expect, it's just that much more special. Right. It really is. I mean, this movie is, is for all intents and purposes, a love letter both to the medium in which he's working and, and to a faithful audience of cinema. It, yeah, and doesn't it feel like this has just always kind of been in Martin Scorsese, the message he's trying to send? Well, I mean, if you look look back at, at all of his films, particularly Goodfellas, you'll see homages to early cinema and silent cinema. You'll see him work pretty gracefully to to deliver these these little uh, in-jokes for, for students of cinema. I mean, even the, the entire look of Shutter Island feels like a, like a Michael Powell film. You know, the cinematography in The Aviator feels like an early Technicolor picture at points. And, and this, I mean, it feels like working up to this, this is truly his love letter to cinema. Yeah, and the, I mean, the closing shot of Goodfellas is it's, yeah, is a reference to something you see in this movie. Right. And that was a really great reminder. There's uh, the poster for this movie, and there's a sequence in this movie is a reference to something you see in the movie, too, an old silent picture. And, I, you know, again, we're going a little too far here and even talking about what Hugo really is about. Honestly, the title Hugo and just the entire general idea of it is one big red herring, if you think about it. It is. It's yeah. almost a little misleading. Oh, yeah. Actually, it's pretty misleading. <laughs> I would say deliberately. I would, <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah, it's definitely yeah. deliberate. It's for sure deliberate. <clears throat> I mean, if you're misled, I think that you'll find what you've been led to to be just as worthwhile as what you may have been expecting going into it. At least in our opinion, this is just magical. It's one of my favorite movies of the year, easily. Ben, I, I went into the movie the same as you, not having, not really knowing anything about it. And I went with my wife. And as some of these things started to be revealed, I would turn to her and say, oh, I know what this is, and tell her what it is, because she has no knowledge or history of early cinema, and it's it's not quite the same getting it from your husband during the middle of a movie, but it was one of those sort of shockers to me where, as I was watching it, I was just enthralled by those sequences that you guys have been talking about, and it made me very emotional. I, like, I, I started to well up a little bit, and that was sort of a weird sequence for that to happen in, but it was just because I feel like you know, maybe we share a lot of the same love and a lot of the same passion for cinema that Scorsese obviously does, and that the person in this movie obviously does as well. So. Well, and if you don't see it in this movie, and you don't see it in Raging Bull or The King of Comedy in his other films, his passion for cinema and the medium that he has become a part of and that he has loved since he was a child, then you'll see it in something like the documentary, I think it's called Martin Scorsese's like Journey into American Cinema, where he's talking about the history of it. And just to, to hear this man talk about it, I could sit there and listen to him for just hours. And I mean, mm. that's like a four or six hour documentary. Yeah, it's long. And it's just fantastic. And I mean, if it involves just sitting there and listening to Martin Scorsese just tell stories and talk about why he loves it, I'm totally there. And a couple other people that I, we should single out here, Dante Ferretti's production design yes. in this movie is ridiculous. And obviously he has to sort of seamlessly mix it in with the CGI that you mentioned before. But man, that guy deserves some props. You know, Dante Ferretti did the set design for Gangs of New York, which was not nominated for an Academy Award. I feel like he's outdone himself in this movie yeah. for God's sake. Yeah. What is what is better looking set wise this year? Well, it reminded me of Steven Spielberg's movie The Terminal yeah. because I mean obviously you're at a train station and it's being utilized to its greatest potential here. And the difference is that this is a period film, right? And he's having to just reconstruct something from this just immaculate time period in Paris, France, and it's just absolutely gorgeous. And someone else too here who earns his stripes or reinforces why he has them in the first place is Howard Shore. In his uh, original score. I thought it was lovely, and I haven't, in the reviews that I've read since I saw the movie, I've not heard anyone really single him out. No, he's great. But I mean, it was it was a terrific score. It is, and this whole movie is just terrific. If you're a fan of film in general, it's, it's a must, and the less you know about it, that's a good thing. You might not know a lot about Hugo right now, even though it's playing in most theaters nationwide. You gotta get your butt in the theater and watch it. I feel like we should do like an extra special edition Aspect Radio podcast that is a spoiler edition of this movie. At <laughs> I some would point. I would actually really love to do that at some point. 
point if we at can, some if point we can find know, the time in the, next, yeah. in the next couple weeks. Well, yeah, and I'd like I like to get some of our other friends too. Yeah, that's a good idea. This movie to talk about it because I know that they're just as into it as we are. Well, I'd like to see it again in the meantime because there's a lot to this in spite of it being a PG-rated family movie. Well, the film is now playing nationwide, and Martin Scorsese is capable of making a PG-rated family film, in case you didn't know, and it's playing in Tuscaloosa at the Cobb Hollywood 16. We'll take a quick break now to think about something that's been bothering us. Are we men or Muppets? You'll find out next. In love with a pig? <laughs> oh, what'll I tell the guys in marketing? <laughs> Maybe you expect me to go hog wild? <laughs> Maybe, perhaps you could bring home the bacon, huh? <laughs> All the sounds of love. Sweet. Oink, oink. <laughs> Cancel the show. <laughs> Welcome back to Aspect Radio with Corey and our producer, Andrew. I'm Ben. Now, Corey, growing up, I was a Muppets guy. My initial exposure came when I stayed over at my grandmother's house and watched Muppet Babies on Nick Jr., where I saw the late Jim Henson's name for the first time as the credits rolled by at the end of the show. And that same grandmother actually had a VHS tape with Muppets Take Manhattan taped on it, which my siblings and I watched repeatedly for years. And with the holidays approaching, our sentimentality and nostalgia fixes will be more and more readily apparent, so hopefully our listeners will indulge us but that's really honestly a film that I'll cherish forever when I consider part of what you might call my childhood pantheon. Along with that, you've got the other great Muppet movies, including the early ones, which I still haven't seen. Honestly, I haven't seen the Muppet movie or the great Muppet caper. What? Yeah, I haven't. And the great Muppet Christmas Carol with Michael Caine as Scrooge is fantastic. It's probably the best iteration of that story on film. Sorry, Graham. <laughs> <laughs> so the news that the Apatow fraternity member, Jason Siegel, a huge Muppet fan, seemingly struck a deal to revitalize the franchise and bring the characters back for another feature film certainly piqued my interest, but I'll admit I was slightly skeptical about where a guy like Siegel would take this beloved property. Wow. I can't believe we're all back together. Yeah! Sorry. I was super excited. The Muppets have always been about artistic integrity, not cheap tricks. Check it out. Fart shoes! This is going to be a really short movie. Throw me over. I think that's an electric fence. It's an electric fence? Yep. Maybe you don't need the whole world to love you, you know? Maybe you just need one person. Oh, Kenny. Kenny, Kenny, Kenny! what anybody says i believe in you and you Often publicly insisting he'd handled it with care, Siegel enlisted the help of forgetting Sarah Marshall director Nicholas Stoller to co-write it with him, as well as Flight of the Concords director James Bobin to direct it, and star and songwriter Brett McKenzie to write some songs as the music supervisor for the soundtrack. And the story here is painfully, and to be fair, ironically, just totally basic, about Siegel and his brother Walter, a new Muppet and superfan of Kermit, Fozzie and the rest of the gang as they set out to Los Angeles to visit the Muppet studio, which is being bought by an evil oil baron unless the Muppets can raise a ridiculous amount of money, $10 million to be exact, to save the day. And how do they raise that money? Well, by putting on a show, of course, as the Muppets do. So Corey, with the whole gang in tow and a perfectly game human cast and crew playing along with straight faces, I must ask, are you a cold and cynical man? like Chris Cooper's evil rapping oil baron, <laughs> or are you a Muppet? Well, to skirt perhaps the line of what we're allowed to say on this podcast, I think you'd have to be a real bastard not to like this movie. I mean, you don't have to love it. You don't have to think it's great, but the palpable joy that's brought to screen and the sheer unlikelihood of getting something this beloved as close to 
being totally right as this movie does i mean it's just totally unlikely and it's totally charming and it has a couple little moments that don't quite work but it ends up being quite funny the music is really really fun and basically it's just as good of a reintroduction to this group of characters as you could hope for after their extended hiatus from the big screen and even from television you know it's just something that I enjoyed the hell out of pretty much all the way throughout. Yeah, me too. I think it's great. I really do. And look, I might still be riding a high from having seen Hugo, but I think that that high carried over from yesterday when I saw The Muppets. Honestly, it to me, it reminds me of something like a good Pixar movie. Just a really good-natured, funny movie with a great heart. This movie is so full of heart, and it's just something that everybody can enjoy. And it's just so darn funny. It just really is and it's handled again with care by guys like Jason Siegel and Disney, obviously, who have brought these characters back who have still got it. And the voice character actors who aren't obviously Jim Henson or Frank Oz this time around, but people who have been involved with the franchise for a long time, they've still got it. They do a fantastic job, and they were brought to life in a way that, for me, hasn't been realized since something like A Muppet Christmas Carol, and I think that this movie has a lot of similarities to Muppets Take Manhattan, and I think that that was probably a pretty huge point of inspiration for Jason Siegel, who probably grew up on it like I did. And at the end of my screening, there were four people in my theater. I saw it on a Monday or a Tuesday afternoon, and two women got up in the towards the front and they looked up and saw me and another guy in the theater and they say what did y'all think and the guy just goes it was just full of nostalgia it was wonderful and i just thought yeah that's about as well as you can put it the muppets are some people's childhoods i know that people who didn't grow up with them might not really understand but i don't know it's just about jokes and it's about songs and dancing and i mean if it takes some colorful puppets to deliver that message then fine but again like you said you'd have to be a pretty cold-hearted person not to enjoy every single minute of this <laughs> andrew no I, I i did i was talking to Corey beforehand and i i did like this movie i, I liked it but i didn't love it and i love the muppets and, and and so i was a little bit disappointed after watching this much like you just got back from hugo i just got back from watching the muppets and I didn't have the love in my heart for this movie that I that I wanted to. And I think that some of it is just because it's it's so cheesy in some parts. I, I think especially the intro, that very first song, Jason Siegel just has this completely ridiculous fake smile plastered mm-hmm. to his face that isn't there the rest of the movie. He's really goofy. And it's really that particular scene, that song. It gets better and then it gets worse a little bit again at the end. <laughs> but it, it's just so over the top that... I don't buy it. I don't know. And I guess you're not supposed to buy it. It's it's self-referential. Like it's very self-aware. Like they, you know, they make a lot of comments about the budget of this movie, even though there are things like that, that I don't know. It didn't quite connect for me the way that I, I wanted it to connect. Don't get me wrong. It was a very funny movie. I thought the plot, while simple, was still, it was exactly what you needed to get, to have an excuse to, to get in touch with the Muppets characters. I liked like what all the Muppets were, were doing now that they had not been together for a while. Like I thought that stuff was interesting. And so I did like the movie. I just, it just didn't quite connect to me the way that I wish it had. And while I wouldn't say I grew up with the Muppets, I did go out of my way to watch that stuff when I was younger. I remember watching Muppets Tonight when that actually was on and going back and watching some of the old Muppet show. I think that it was more about nostalgia than it was about making a good movie in some ways. I think they found a really healthy medium, and I think that they mixed those two extremely well. I think this movie works because of how self-referential it is and how self-aware it is because you get those jokes throughout the entire thing. And again, I think that this plot is just so deliberately ridiculous. An evil oil baron wants to drill (laughs) under the Muppet studio. It's just you can see Chris Cooper just ready to just laugh at himself as he was saying those lines. And it's totally ridiculous. And I kind of agree with you uh, about Jason Segel. I I couldn't really wrap my head around how goofy he was kind of playing it. But you could tell his heart was really in the right place because this movie has to sell you on the first scene because we're greeted with a new Muppet and we're so used to this universe. And are we going to be willing to accept this new character, Walter? Again, we talk about these sequences. We had one in Hugo that I talked about before that I really liked. And honestly, I would throw the opening sequence of this into that same category. The opening sequence? Oh yeah, totally. Not the opening song, the opening sequence where we're talking about 
Walter's childhood and he's narrating his childhood yeah, that's, as he's that's, grown that's up. really good yeah I like yeah that. The, you're getting to know Walter yeah. it's like the origin story of Walter I definitely bought Walter more than I bought Jason Siegel's character mm-hmm. and his relationship with Amy Adams character I honestly kind of wish that they just hadn't been in the movie at well, all well it's kind of like if, if you watched SNL recently when Jason Siegel hosted during the monologue he's singing a song and the Muppets are with him and I think Kermit says who watches the Muppets for the humans right <laughs> you know nobody but that's 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 a very accurate statement, I think. Well, I, totally. I, I mean, I, I don't know the guy's name who was in Muppets Take Manhattan. It was just right. kind of like this invisible face. And this movie wouldn't exist if it weren't for someone like Jason Siegel, who used his popularity from Forgetting Sarah Marshall and the other work he'd done with Jed Apatow to develop this, something that he loved as a child and he's still a fan of, obviously, and was able to revitalize this into something that I think belongs with the rest of the catalog absolutely what did, what did you guys think of uh there are a lot of celebrity cameos in this film did you think that those were well used or uh, oh, yeah, or most funny of them or? most of them were jim parsons of the big bang theory is a standout okay. well i won't reveal reveal exactly what he does okay. it's pretty hysterical look i'm not a big bang theory fan yeah. mainly because i haven't watched a lot of yeah. it and it just rubs me the wrong way but I know that he's a popular guy. He's won several Emmys for his work on that. But during that sequence, which is one of my favorite in the movie, it's easily my favorite song in the movie. Uh-huh. It's fantastic. And obviously we referenced it here, our opening. But I wish that was Jimmy Fallon. <laughs> I wish it was Jimmy Fallon. And I know this is a completely subjective take on it. But and this a is very a very specific subjective it is, take. Yeah. It is. But this is just something. Not that, I wish it was someone else. But <laughs> it's something that's totally up his alley. You know what I mean? He's a musical guy, yeah. and that would have worked for me. And yeah, that's a that's a minor little quibble, just because I'm not a fan of Jim Parsons, and I thought it would have worked. Just it, I as mean, well. it's just it's just like his goofy looking face. Yeah, it, it works. It totally works. Uh, and and then you've got Jack Black. Who's I thought Jack Black was hilarious. better used in this movie as as uh, an angry guy who is like animals uh, anger management uh, partner <laughs> who becomes uh, an inadvertent participant in the Muppet telethon later in the film, which is very funny. You've also got Alan Arkin popping up near the beginning of the movie with some really funny lines. And these faces usually pop up for like a line or two and, and go about their business. But that line is more often than not really funny, like Neil Patrick Harris and even Selena Gomez, who's, uh, whose line got a big laugh out of me even though i really like her <laughs> or just like the there's the scene backstage where Whoopi goldberg selena gomez and the kid from modern family pop up right and kermit or whoever I, somebody one of the muppets is backstage and they're like oh Whoopi goldberg selena gomez and you <laughs> referring <laughs> to the kid because nobody knows that kid's name yeah so, <laughs> i just thought that was a nice little touch it is funny that the kid didn't know kermit's name either yeah yeah, yeah. are you a teenage mutant ninja turtle right yeah. That was good. And no, I think the cameos totally work and it fits within the Muppets universe. This is what they did in those old movies and on their variety shows. I mean, in Muppets Take Manhattan, it's like, why is Gregory Hines popping up in Central Park, you know, roller skating? Or why is Miss Piggy working at a makeup stand with Joan Rivers? It's just part of the show and it's fantastic. And that's what I love about the Muppets is that they're showmen, all of them. You know, you spoke about the, the sort of cheesy humor. For my money, the Muppets have this sort of old-style vaudevillian brand of humor that is cheesy and you know is what? sincere and earnest, almost almost like a like a cleaner and more self-aware version of the Marx Brothers in a lot of ways. It's just telling cheesy jokes, making gags about how the movie's bad while it's happening or something like that. I mean, that's the whole purpose of Statler and, and Waldorf. And Corey, I, I liked it when the Muppets did it. You, it you was the like, humans. You didn't like Amy Adams, like I. Well, why was she comments? like dancing, like dancing in a in a diner? Like I just that just didn't make sense to me, and it wasn't. I didn't care. Like I just never cared about either of the human characters, and it didn't kill the movie for me. But it definitely it definitely bummed me out that I guess that they were in it, and I feel bad saying that. But yes, yeah, so then when he thought they were alone, he said. Oil under this studio, see? I'm gonna tear it to the ground, see? Sweet, sweet oil, see? People still talk like that? Maybe that's just how he sounded in my head. Either way, we've gotta find Kermit. He'll know what to do. How do we find Kermit? Nobody's seen him in years. <gasps> what? Stop the car! I've got an idea! Mm. 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 This is delicious. Great mm-hmm. idea, Walter. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I, I cared about the Muppets, and but, I, I just didn't care about those guys. They, they were there to, 
to service the plot. I, yeah, and I, basically to provide transportation for the other Muppet to get to L.A., and that was about it. No, I know, I know. I mean, but that's how the movie gets made, and they're not in the second half of it enough to really I bought the mess narrative. it up. I bought the narrative. I'm you did? sorry. I, I mean, it's extremely no, I bought basic. The, don't get me wrong. I bought the narrative itself. But, but that's part of it, though. I, I, their their relationship. I, I get it. it is. Yeah. Because, I mean, you're talking about a, a couple of different relationships. Obviously, you have this sort of love triangle in a way, right, where she has to learn how to share her boyfriend, Jason Siegel, with the Walter character, and Jason Siegel has to learn to let Walter go and become a Muppet. And, yeah, I mean, you have a musical sequence or two that are tacked on, and that one felt like one, even though it is a pretty funny song written by... Brett McKenzie, or co-written by him, and it feels right out of Flight of the Concords yeah, to me. Yeah, uh, most of, these of the songs, songs do. do. Yeah, they totally the, do. The Chris Cooper performance. Yeah, it's totally awkward, but again, it's, it's so funny. It's very self-aware of what's going on, and just to hear Chris Cooper, you know, the guy from American Beauty and Reach, rapping, <laughs> rapping with the Muppets, John LaRoche, and you know, in in this again, it is. It's all about the Muppets and how do they perform. And for me, it was just good to see him back on screen doing what they do so well. I kept thinking to myself, who's the best here? Who's being left out? And obviously, we don't get a lot of Gonzo. We don't get a lot of yeah. Rolf. You know, even that will see, and that's part of my problem is that I wish we had spent way more time with those characters mm-hmm. than we did with these human characters. Well, who's it all about when it comes to the Muppets? Right? It's all about Kermit. And, it, it's yes, it's always about. Yeah. Well, I mean, Muppets Kermit in space. Piggy, that's that's all Ozzie. about Gonzo. I mean, right. It, yeah, it can be about whoever anything. they want it to be right. about because all of the Muppets or most of the Muppets, I think, are strong enough to stand on their own. Yeah. Uh, well, for the most part. Also, after like three consecutive movies where Ratso is like the second build character. Yeah, he doesn't have what a, happened he doesn't to him? Have a yeah. line. I actually was, was I, he know, even that, in it? I didn't even see he's, him. He pops up like once. I, I saw some mice, but I never saw yeah, him. When they're like particular. cleaning up the theater, I yeah. saw a few rats. But yeah, he doesn't have any lines. That was a big problem for me <laughs> as far as missing Muppets go. But it gave way though for Chris Cooper's little henchmen, the bear and the... Bobo and... and uh, yeah. yeah, those guys were Uncle Deadly. They're so funny. He has one those of the funniest lines in the movie, the bear does, where he looks over to him and says do you think we're working for the bad guy <laughs> yeah, yeah. it's good stuff <laughs> it's, it's that fantastic. is a good one. yeah and uh waldorf tell me their the statler and waldorf. Statler and waldorf they're great when they pop up here and there but again for me this is just another example of what movies are all about what a muppet movie should be and yeah it does poke fun at itself and it is completely hyper aware of itself i think at this point you kind of have to be and it'd be really hard to make it just a straightforward muppets movie and i feel like in their films they've always sort of poked fun at themselves. They I mean, have. It's just what they do. And you're either a Muppet person or you're not. And it sounds to me, Andrew, like you're kind of in the middle. Well, no, no, I'm I'm a Muppet person. I'm not a person Muppet person. <laughs> well, I mean, even even like the original Muppet movie, which it, it's blowing my mind that you haven't seen this because I think I watched it last night or the night before. I mean, even that is packed to the brim with silly celebrity cameos, much like this, and jokes that reference the fact that they're making a movie. I mean, one of the plot points finds the Electric Mayhem, the band. They track down our waylaid protagonists <laughs> by using a copy of the screenplay of the movie. <laughs> it's always been filled with that sort of thing. And this just is in keeping with what the Muppets have always been like. And, and you know, if the human characters sort of get in the way, uh, you know, I kind of feel like they do at points, but I don't really mind Jason Siegel being goofy. And I don't mind Amy Adams being in her enchanted sweetheart mode here because they're fun i mean it's almost like the the spirit of the muppets and the silliness and this broadness is is infectious and and the human characters are acting like children who are having a great time with the muppets it's hard to begrudge that i think think. the muppets are at their best though when they're interacting with very real human characters and that was i guess sort of my problem is that they weren't real but you know what i was what i was saying to you earlier is that i would really like to see a new iteration of the muppet show and i think that this yeah totally i think that this movie and if you if you've been following the muppets online they have not gone away right they they make about one really good like short and you know sometimes it's like two to three minutes long every year it seems that are usually really really funny Mm -hmm. and you can find them on youtube they're not hard to find if they did that stuff in a show format today, I still think that it would work. I think that audiences today would still buy it. I was thinking while I was watching the movie, something has to be in development right now. I hope to so. cash in on I this hope popularity. So. I mean, I, these web shorts that you're talking about, I watched a couple of the Swedish chef that mm-hmm. popped up in the last couple of years, and he's he's great in this movie too. So yeah, I do hope that they're capitalizing on that. But what I love about these Muppet movies, especially this and Muppets Take Manhattan, and you see it in a few of the other ones too, is that 
it's great when they've disbanded, you know, when they have to come back together because you get these montages of them finding the other Muppets and seeing what they're up to, like you said before. And they're funny here. They're really great when they go find Gonzo. And Fozzie's story is great. I think um, Rolf's is the best. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you don't get to see much of him, but when you get that moment, it really pays off. Look, again, I'm a Muppets guy, and I'll see the next Muppets movie unless it's, you know, unless I don't know about it and it's straight to video. And nobody <laughs> sees it, which a few of them have been. Wasn't there one in like 2005? There was, was like, like a, a Christmas TV special and then the Muppets Wizard of Oz. Yeah, yeah that's what I'm thinking of. That that I think that even they and, sort of disavow. Yeah, they, I think so. They make references to the fact that they haven't been on since like I mean, something the last, else. The last official Muppets movie was Muppets from Space. And, you know, that one's okay, but it's no Muppet Treasure Island or Muppet Christmas Carol. Both of those are amazing. Or even, you know, the Muppet movie or the... Great Muppet Caper or Muppets Take. Okay, I'm a Muppet guy too. <laughs> so uh, they're they're all pretty great. This is a, a great addition. Well, the film is now playing nationwide and in Tuscaloosa at the Cobb Hollywood 16. We'll take one more quick break and come back to tell you which directors and actors we'd like to see reunite on the big screen. Stay with us. Together again. Gee, it's good to be together again. I just can't imagine that you've ever been gone. It's not starting over, it's just going on together again. Now we're here and there's no need remembering when. Welcome back. Corey, watching The Muppets, a delightful reunion of familiar faces who simply belong together on stage and the screen, got me thinking. What directors and actors out there who have worked together before many years ago deserve another shot with each other? That is to say... It is the audience who deserves to see them reunite once again, of course, if they're still in good form. And I'd wager that my picks here are in good form. But I'll let you start us off here. We'll give three pairings. So tell us what worked so well before and what might work again in the future. Well, it wouldn't be uh, one of our lists without me blatantly stealing from something that we discussed earlier in the show, as I tend to do. This pairing of actor and director of been quite successful i think twice before once resulting in a best actor nomination in a film that received a best picture nomination and best director nomination for martin scorsese and i think this actor is quite simply regarded as one of the most unparalleled intense and committed actors working today certainly his portrayal as bill the butcher in gangs of new york leads to that reputation so i would love to see martin scorsese once again try to harness the brute force of Daniel Day-Lewis in another film and bring his trademark intensity to the screen again with Scorsese's love for the craft and, and Day-Lewis's commitment to his craft. I think that their pairings are always special. Gangs of New York and The Age of Innocence, you know, even though that one was a bit more subdued, is still incredibly powerful. Yeah, it is. And you know, look, I'm not the biggest fan of Gangs of New York, but I'm not going to try to deny Daniel Day-Lewis's performance in that. It's fantastic and deserve the accolades that it certainly got. But that's a good pick. My first one is one that I referenced to you today. Let's go ahead and throw Woody Allen's name out there. Woody often obviously makes movies about younger people and the romance between those younger people. And he, for whatever reason, he's not writing films about people his own age. And that's unfortunate. I mean, he used to do it, obviously, because he was directing his peers and stories about them and starring them and with great success. But now he has people like Scarlett Johansson and Jonathan Rhys Myers and Colin Farrell and Ewan McGregor in his films, and he has yet to cast someone his own age. He came close with You Will Meet a Tall Dark Stranger with the female lead in that, and I thought that that was a pretty compelling story in that film. Mm -hmm. But I wish he would do it again, and I wish that he would go back to the well, so to speak, with one of his greatest muses and actresses, Diane Weist. That's a good pick. Who did some of the best, probably the best work of her career in Hannah and Her Sisters and Bullets Over Broadway, which she won Oscars for. And she did great work in September, too, and some of his other films, Radio Days. She's fantastic in that movie. She just belongs in Woody's universe, and I just wish that he would give her a role. And she's still doing great work, too. I mean, in Rabbit Hole, she gives a great performance. Oh, yeah. So oh, yeah. Diane Weist has still got it. Woody obviously has still got it, so let's make it happen, guys. And two other actors that I wish Woody would work with, Michael Caine, who is still going strong and was so good in Hannah and Her Sisters, just one of the great supporting performances of all time, a well-deserved Oscar there. And John Cusack, too. And I oh, think yeah. John Cusack did some of his finest acting in Bullets Over Broadway 
and in Shadows and Fog. That brief little role in Shadows and Fog. Yeah, he is so good in Shadows and Fog and has so many, like, he's just got so many great tiny little scenes in that and this bordello that he's in. Uh And I think Woody, in a scene that he shares with John Cusack, he just lets him deliver some of his best lines, in my opinion. I just think that, obviously, when Woody gets philosophical in his movies, he's at his best. And John Cusack, to me, is one of those best line deliverers. When I go, I want to die in my sleep without ever knowing. At some world, when the nicest gift you can wish for someone you really care for is that they die in their sleep. If I thought that there was nothing except this, I'd kill myself. I thought of it. Believe me, there have been many times where my brain has said, why not? I mean, there's no point to anything. Somehow my blood always said, live, live. And I always listen to my blood. Yeah, those are good picks. I think you're going to be mad at me for this because this is a total cheat. Probably not as much of a cheat as, as my third pick. But this is also, the director is also Woody Allen. But the actor, however, is also Woody Allen. Uh, because <laughs> I, I feel like he hasn't acted in one of his own films since 2003's Anything Else. No, he was in Scoop. Oh, that's right. Yeah, Scoop. Okay. I forgot about Scoop for some reason. I <laughs> How can't, dare you I forget can't about imagine Scoop. why. Okay, well, the point still stands. It's okay. been too long, and he's still one of the most magnetically funny screen presences, particularly, of course, when he's working with his own material. Like you said, is, of course, interested in the uh, in younger generations, I suppose, but for him to get back in front of the camera again, in addition to being behind it, I think would be would be nice. And, and I actually hear that he does have a role in his next film called Nero Fiddled, I believe. They, they changed the name. With Judy Davis. Fantastic. And yeah. she, we could have thrown her name in there as well because she's she, just... Yeah. Man, she's dynamite in his movies. And she's she's dynamite in most things yeah. that she does, but husbands and oh, wives, man. yeah, brutal. Yeah. She's fantastic. I, I can't wait to see her back in a movie, regardless of yeah. uh, it just being Woody Allen, for sure. That's a good pick. My next pick, I'm eager to see this, because this guy has just become an icon for many different reasons. There was a post that just popped up on Twitter today that said he was on the cover of a biology textbook. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know where you're going with this. (laughs) Overseas, and obviously the actor is Nicolas Cage, but he gave one of his best performances, just a completely manic performance in the 80s under the direction of Joel and Ethan Coen in Raising Arizona. And I just wish that they could apply that same manic energy to another one of their scripts. And I just think, honestly, it was a match made in heaven back then. And I think that if they could put a stranglehold on whatever it is Nicolas Cage is doing these days, I think that that might be the right environment for it. In one of their madcap comedies, maybe. Because whatever he's doing in things like Wicker Man and Trespass and Bangkok Dangerous, I'll say it probably belongs in the hands of the Coens because I think that they are probably the only kind of people who could bottle that energy and do something with it. I'll give that a hill, yeah. <laughs> uh, with with a with an amendment that Werner Herzog is also a person who can bottle that energy and, and channel it to something <laughs> constructive as well. Okay, my third pick, this is a huge cheat. I'm not going to lie. This is an actor-director pairing, but this actor is still pretty prominent in this director's films. However, they previously collaborated in a behind-the-scenes that was far more fruitful with him being both behind and in front of the camera rather than just being an actor for this director's collaborations with other writers. While it's all well and good, Ben, that, that Owen Wilson still stars in Wes Anderson's movies, there's no denying that Owen Wilson's contributions to the screenplays that he co-wrote with Anderson, those for Anderson's first three movies, Bottle Rocket, Rushmore, and The Royal Tenenbaums, are far more valuable, in my opinion, than anything that's, that's come since. We got it, ma'am. We know it backwards, and we know it forwards, because we've done the legwork, and we've done the research, and that's now it pays off that. tomorrow. Just gotta follow through. What are you working on? Oh, wow. Hey, that's one of your little drawings. There he goes, pole vaults over the thing. There he goes, and there he is. I love it, though. I love it. You're creative. 
So the reunion you want I want for them writers. For writers. Okay. I want them to write again. I'm totally fine with that. Yeah. I agree with that. Rushmore is one of my favorite movies ever, and the other films obviously are great. And people discount Owen Wilson, obviously, as a mainstream performer. They, he's sort of become a punchline, I guess, as a guy who stars in these really clunky mainstream movies. But you know, he pops up in something like Midnight in Paris and gives a good performance that reminds you that he's actually legitimately talented. But so many people forget that he's an Oscar-nominated screenwriter for Royal Tenenbaums right. and he co-wrote Rushmore so there's a lot more to Owen Wilson than just Marley and Me and the big trip or whatever that movie was that came out this year. The... Wait was he the guy in Marmaduke? He was Marmaduke wasn't oh, he? Oh yeah he was yeah. Marmaduke Mar- oh no okay <laughs> uh, never mind yeah, he was Marmaduke. That but was, was it the big year that came the out? The big year. Okay, yeah, yeah, whatever. But that had Steve Martin and Jack Black, too, so he's not the only one slumming. For me, Owen Wilson gets a lifetime pass for co-writing Rushmore. Yeah, well. Um, and that movie just came out on Blu-ray, and it that's a must-own. Who wouldn't? Who wouldn't get a lifetime pass for co-writing that movie? Yeah. My last one, I've actually got two that I think are interesting. I think you'll find interesting. Uh-huh. But the one I'll count as one and the other an honorable mention. Steven Spielberg has worked with a lot of great actors. And early in his career, I think none better than Richard Dreyfuss. I almost <laughs> I almost went with this. <laughs> well, it's been a while since Richard Dreyfuss has been utilized correctly. Yeah. And Spielberg obviously was one of the first to do that. And, I mean, if you needed an everyman, he was one of your go-to guys back then. And I mean, I just can't think of better performances in films like that. If you're talking about these extraordinary films that pit ordinary people in those kinds of circumstances, I can't think of a better person than Richard Dreyfuss. I just wish 1970s Richard Dreyfuss existed in every single era because that's just such a specific style that you can't find these days. I've often thought that maybe Paul Giamatti has what it takes to sort Mm -hmm. of capture that same sort of nuance that Richard Dreyfuss had, but I mean, these guys are still active. Obviously, Spielberg's making a couple movies a year in some cases, this year specifically, but Richard Dreyfuss has just been too long, man. Get back together. Right. Get the band back together. (laughs) Always not so good, but Jaws and Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Again, lifetime pass. Yeah, pretty much. (laughs) And my extra one here, we talked about this guy as someone who may or may not be has-been, a directing Uh has-been, and it's John Carpenter. And somebody who's not a has-been and has done some great work over the past few years, Kurt Russell. And if you just put Kurt Russell in another John Carpenter movie, something good might happen. And that's something that John Carpenter hasn't had in a long time. He's having to scrounge around and make Mm -hmm. these B-movies with nobody in them or no real significant actors. But he made his best films, arguably, with Kurt Russell. So put him back in another movie. Kurt, get him off of his butt and out of his creative funk, and I think something special might happen. I'm down with that. I would be down with that in a heartbeat. I have one honorable mention as well. You mentioned the actor, Paul Giamatti, and the director's Alexander Payne. Paul Giamatti, I think, has never been as well utilized as he was in Payne's film Sideways. And this particularly came to my mind not to get into it too much because I have a feeling we'll talk about it in a future show, but I recently saw Alexander Payne's The Descendants, and it made me think fondly of Sideways and how great Paul Giamatti is in that role as this schlubby sort of, for want of a better term, sort of a loser who is thrust into this crisis during this road trip. Payne is often accused by critics of having a certain degree of contempt for his characters, sort of jeering at them. But I think that Sideways uh, and Giamatti's performance in that is the ultimate rebuttal to that argument. Oh, it's such a positive movie. Yeah. Look, I know we're going to talk about The Descendants once I see it, but Alexander Payne, man, God, that guy is just a killer out there. And I'm just glad that he is back and making a movie again. But uh, obviously, you know, I think the king of all of these reunions people would like to see here and that we haven't mentioned because maybe it's just too painfully obvious, Scorsese and De Niro. And De Niro, again, is one of these has-beens that we may or may not have mentioned before. And I think that this guy is like a walking corpse on screen, personally. I don't think he's made a good movie in a long time. He hasn't found inspiration maybe like he did with Scorsese. And what was their last movie together, Casino in 95? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's been 16 years since their last movie, so and I know they're still good friends. I mean, honestly, that's why I didn't mention that because I don't really think much of De Niro anymore, to be honest. No, he's horrible. I'd, I'd rather I'd rather Scorsese continue to work with Leo or my new talent like Ben Kingsley. Well, I mean, no, I'm saying yeah, he still be he's still able to mine a great performance 
out of Ben Kingsley right. in his old age. A great performance in this and even in Shutter Island, yeah, too. So you're right. Why can't he do it in De Niro? Where is De Niro gone? I, I just don't know that De Niro wants that anymore, man. You know, I don't think he's the guy he used to be. De Niro's after the De Niro. Oh, man. <laughs> okay, Gene Shalit. Nice. Yeah. Nice. Well done there. Well, that should do it here for the reunions. If you've got some reunions you want to throw our way, please send us an email at feedback at aspectradio.net. We'd love to hear it. But let's move along to DVDs here, Corey. I think that this was a fairly big release week. It's a huge release week. For the purpose of writing my Tusk column, I revisited 30 Minutes or Less a movie that on our infamous Lost episode of Aspect Radio, I didn't give a very favorable review to, but I think it's one of those movies, or it must be, that plays better at home when you're just sort of relaxing and you're more amenable, I guess, to just dudes chatting with one another and, and making jokes. And it, it's just it's just that sort of thing. I thought thing. it was funny. I thought it was okay. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it got it a lot better. Anything it got special. a lot funnier this time around. I still think Jesse Eisenberg is a bit miscast, but the turn into darkness that it takes near the end uh, is less jarring to me now. And I appreciate Danny McBride for being a real nasty guy in this one. I haven't seen it since I saw it in the theaters, but I remember just while I was watching it thinking this is just a funny comedy that just clips along at an 80 minute running yeah. time. Yeah. And that's what I want in some comedies these days and most yeah. of my comedies. And I just think that the one liners in this are hilarious, be they written or improvised. Swartzen brings it. McBride is McBride. He's his very standard McBride character, mm -hmm. but that's funny to me. And when he's on, he's on. And I think he is in 30 minutes or less. Yeah. And Aziz Ansari, too, is funny. He's very funny. I tend to agree with you that Jesse Eisenberg was slightly miscast, but I think he gets by. Yeah, he gets by. He's just not as naturally effusively funny as the other three guys he's sharing the screen with. And you've never seen Jason from the Friday the 13th series get it like he does in this movie. <laughs> yeah. That, that made me laugh out loud. That was, that was good. Well, what else? A really underrated little comedy that came out at the end of the summer that I don't think, I don't know if you saw this, but it features, I think, Paul Rudd's best screen performance to date. It's called Our Idiot Brother. Paul Rudd plays this affable uh, hippie type who gets kicked off the commune he's living on with his girlfriend, played by Catherine Hahn, and sort of moves from home to home of his three sisters, each with their own problems. They're played by Elizabeth Banks, Emily Mortimer, who is equally good here and Zoe Deschanel who is probably one of the more tolerable things she's done lately but it's got a great supporting cast Steve Coogan Adam Scott PJ Miller Rashida Jones I mean it's just stacked with funny people and you know it's just it's just sort of this nice little ambling movie that Paul Rudd really shines in I think it's worth seeing T.J. Miller's funny. Yeah. He's a really funny guy. Yeah, he's really funny in this, too. Yeah, I think that guy's got a bright future. And got to mention Rashida Jones in The Muppets. I thought she was good. Yeah, she was. Yeah. And then real quickly, three little indie releases. Herzog's documentary, Cave of Forgotten Dreams, is now on disc. If you haven't seen that, now would be a good time to check that out. It's an exploration of the Chauvet Cave in southern France that goes to the oldest known cave paintings in existence. And Herzog, it's sort of a tone poem in a lot of ways to the nature of art and the human soul. A little long for me, even at a, its brisk running time. I don't think the subject can sustain a feature, but it's fascinating nonetheless. I'm a little more interested in Herzog's next documentary. Yeah, I had a chance year. to see that in Atlanta this weekend, and Kathleen didn't want to stay. Uh, well, I know, it's a shame. Yeah. Also, the horror comedy Tucker and Dale vs. Evil. A lot of fun featuring Tyler Labine and Alan Tudyk as two uh, friendly hillbillies who are mistaken for terrifying hillbillies by group of college students who think that they're trying to kill them and then horrible death does in fact ensue but completely by accident it's 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 pretty funny stuff and finally this is a movie that i probably feel the strongest about out of this list miranda july's new film the future which totally floored me came up from nowhere because i didn't have very high expectations for it but think of it as as a twee hipster blue valentine as far as the effect this movie has she's probably best known i think for her 2005 film me and you and everyone we know in which she co-starred with john hawks as these adorable people who meet and fall in love surrounded by this ensemble of adorable people who fall in love this one is about two adorable people who fall out of love and the cumulative effect of the last 45 minutes is pretty brutal hmm. but it's it's a good one it's it's worth watching and it does have her trademark 
surrealist moments there that are pretty interesting. Yeah, she's interesting. I saw that Me, You, and Everyone We Know, and it kind of had the vibe of like Bizarro, Todd Solondz. Yeah. And I don't know if this movie has that too. Or... Not not quite so much. That movie's far more explicit in a lot of ways than this is. Yeah, well, it's worth checking out. I know it's on Redbox. I actually stopped by Redbox before I came to return some things, and I saw The Future, Our Idiot Brother, and Beginners is actually now available. You gotta so see that. Are, yeah, there's several things that need to be seen. And a quick note before we move on here, the first few awards that were handed out here as the season is beginning to kick off, and a National Board of Review is probably coming up shortly, the artist took home the New York Film Critics Prize, and some of our friends, Graham, my brother, has seen it, and he'll uh-huh. probably review it on our next show, and Craig Hamilton of the Film Nerds crew has seen it. They say it's great, and I'm sure it's, from what I've heard and seen, it's probably deserving of a lot of what it gets, but... One thing that I thought was interesting from the Independent Spirit Awards, we talked about Red State back a few weeks ago, Uh and we weren't completely fond of it, but as those nominations were announced, I don't know if you saw on Twitter, Kevin Smith sort of lashed out against the Indie Spirit people. I heard about it. I didn't see it. Well, he basically said, F you for not nominating Michael Parks, John Goodman, or Melissa Leo, and he had like the hashtag fake indie. Buddy, your movie's (laughs) not that good. I'll give you Michael Parks is good in that movie. He is. Yeah. And he has a lot of great moments, but if it's not making the cut, do we really want to put it in the same category as something like Take Shelter or Martha Marcy May Marlene right. or The Artist or these other movies? Well, speaking as someone who, had, you know, obviously we've both seen Martha Marcy May yeah. Marlene and this past weekend I saw Take Shelter. And Mr. Smith, your film is no Take Shelter. <laughs> That's all I've got to say. I don't think it takes someone who's seen the movie, to either movie, to say that. Right. So... Kevin Smith, as my wife would say, sit down, sir. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, honestly, we like you, man, but get off your pulpit, man. That's all all too appropriate. Definitely. Well, nothing really new opening in Tuscaloosa theaters this week that I know of. I think we're sticking with what came out last week, but you have some good options, obviously, in Hugo and the Muppets, and Corey doesn't like Arthur Christmas. But Corey, you mentioned that Pedro Almodovar's new film, The Skin I Live In, will be in Birmingham this weekend. Yeah, it looks like it's opening at the Rave Vestavia 10. So I don't know if I'm going to have time to get up there, but but I, I'd like to because that's that's a film I'm looking forward to seeing. Definitely. And we want to remind you that the Bama Art House Film Series has revealed its next slate of independent releases scheduled to kick off January 10th with Lars von Trier's Melancholia, followed by Martha Marcy May Marlene, Bellflower, the other F word the black power mixtape roman polanski's carnage and closing out with david cronenberg's a dangerous method so definitely check that out hey i just had an idea since nothing is opening next week do you want to try to do a show about bellflower like we mentioned last week if i can get my hands on it i definitely will okay i I could get it from netflix but i actually just signed away my dvd subscription oh yeah i'm streaming only now okay yeah i haven't done that yet i haven't taken that plunge i i got rid of quickster yeah i guess you could say (laughs) yeah that would that would be an interesting conversation yeah definitely i'm up for that well you can now find us on aspectradio.net you can email any of your feedback to feedback at aspectradio.net. Find us at twitter.com slash aspectradio or facebook.com slash aspectradio. You can download this and other episodes of the show at aspectradio.net. We'll also post the podcast on Twitter and Facebook and check us out on ale.com and tusk205.com. Find us on iTunes with a quick search or click the link in our blog. And you can read Corey's DVD column in Tusk Magazine every Friday in the Tuscaloosa News or on tusk205.com. Be sure to visit our friend Matt Scalici's website, filmnerds.com, where you will soon see a new addition to the Recommends series. For the Christmas season, we're writing about books about movies, where we recommend some great books you might want to look out for this holiday season. Check that out. And thanks, as always, to our producer, Andrew Richardson, for his skills, patience, and knowledge this week. Even though he's more of a man than a Muppet, apparently. (laughs) But until next week, from Tuscaloosa, Alabama, I'm Ben Planning. And I'm Corey Kraft. This is Aspect Radio. Thanks for listening. Test one, two, one, two, test one, two. Sing the Muppet Babies theme song. Muppet Babies. Doop, 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 doop. That was impressive.
When so, you're on the time of year, danger. Just close your eyes and make believe, and you can go anywhere. Muppet, Muppet, Muppet. This is going in the podcast <laughs> if I have anything to say about it. <laughs> it looks good. We're recording when okay. you guys right. are ready. Oh, are you recording? Yeah, that's all recorded. <laughs>